Every week, man. Every, yep. I know, man. It's yeah. We're okay. Good morning. How are y'all doing? I'm glad to see you here, and I'm glad that I got to sing my lungs out before I came up here, and now I got to preach with a dry mouth. Um, I am. Uh, I'm glad to to be able to to come here and and bring God's word to you this morning. I'm I'm always. Um, honored and humbled to, to be able to fill this pulpit and bring this news of, uh, of this magnitude from, from our, our God and King. Uh, we will be uh, starting a new, a new series within, I guess a mini-series within our, our bigger series this morning. Uh, we're going into Origins, the Problem. And, uh, and again, I'm honored to be able to bring you the first message in this series, um, if, uh, if this is a disaster, take heart. Pastor Ryan will be back next week to clean up my mess. Um, but we're going to get through this together. Um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 this morning. If you will stand with me, uh, we will read uh, the word together. This is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, uh, be with all of us now as we enter into uh, a heavy and, and dark section of Scripture in the, in the wake of beauty and paradise and goodness that we saw last week. Uh, to come immediately into something so uh, so disastrous, uh, it, it feels a little bit like getting whiplash. So be with us now, Lord. Open our hearts to receive your word and our eyes to see what it is that you would have us to see and cause us, O oh Lord, to, uh, to, to be quick and ready to believe what it is that you would have us believe, to know what you would have us know, and to, and to do what you would have us do. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I, uh, I meant to get a haircut before I came up here, but not really. I'm, I'm, I'm milking this COVID-19 thing and growing my hair out because y'all can't tell me to do anything else. <clears throat> I also, I should have I stayed on vacation. Uh, last week, Amy and I came home from a long week of, of uh a vacation with our extended family on her side. Um, we, went to, uh, we went near Gulf Shores, Alabama, um, where I got to enjoy the, the 
Gulf of Mexico for the first time. I'd never really been able to, to do that before. We got to walk down on beaches of fine white sand and picked up hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, snail, uh, yeah, snail shells and crab shells and just gorgeous things that I think you, that I have no idea what used to live in them. I had a blast body surfing with my brothers-in-law and my nephews um, and even one of my nieces who's, who's quite brave uh, in, in some waves that had been magnified by a tropical storm that was a few days off coast. <clears throat> I got sandblasted a few times and it was totally worth it. We went deep sea fishing and caught more red, white, and mingo snapper than 50 people could eat. And there was so much laughter and great encouragement. And it was restful. We went six days without being bombarded by the 24-hour news cycle with anxious and infuriating and sometimes both reports. We were too busy with loved ones to keep up with the vanity and drama and divisiveness of social media. I didn't have to wear a mask until, uh, except for, for twice. Once when I went to pick up donuts with, one morning with Amy's granny, and, uh, and then once when the whole family went out to eat. Last week was, in a word, delightful. But reality hit as soon as we got to the airport. Masks for everyone. CNN running on airport televisions. A return to my phone for all the important information that I had missed. Reminders of anxious, <clears throat> toilsome shamefulness in a world gone mad. That's good. There we go. We, uh, we had seen a rise, we've seen a rise this week in COVID cases and relatives of our, our church family. Some of y'all know that. I've, I've heard... Uh, I've heard that cancer, new cancer diagnoses have, have emerged. I've heard about family conflict. The loss of, of babies this week it happened here in the church family and, and even in Amy's family this week. And it was hard. It was, a, it was a snap back to reality. How did we get here? <clears throat> How could this happen? I was fishing, riding waves. Last week, we, uh, we looked at Genesis chapter 2 as Pastor Ryan exposed the, the beauty, delight, and very goodness of God's creation, culminating in a man and a woman made in the image of God and for his glory, given the responsibility to work and to keep God's holy garden sanctuary in Eden, in perfect naked fellowship, which is my favorite kind of fellowship, with no shame no conflict, and in a garden paradise, custom made by God where perfect fellowship with God and with one another was perpetually experienced. Both man and woman gave in to the temptation to sin against God, their Lord, by making the choice to reject his commandment, to decide for themselves what is good and right, and to govern themselves, choosing their own way, rather than to follow God. And they immediately felt shame and fear and hid themselves from one another. Adam and Eve fell into sin. And subsequently, every human being has been born with a sinful and corrupt nature, which naturally rejects God and his word in favor of 
self-rule, autonomy, independence. We are, by our sin, separated from God and our fellow man. The truth is, no vacation is far enough away for us to avoid the, bro- the brokenness and sinfulness of this world brought about by that garden rebellion that we'll take a look at this morning. Today we'll look at sin's deceptive, seductive nature and its immediate effects uh, on, on mankind. Now the serpent, verse 1 starts, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. In Eden, as yet uncorrupted by human sin, there appears the serpent. And this serpent is described by the text as being crafty. More crafty, in fact, than any other animal that God had made. Crafty already carries a a negative or or ominous connotation in it, doesn't it? Uh, It sounds like a spy, some kind of trickster. But we see this word used later in the Bible to describe the commendable trait of being shrewd or wise or discerning. Proverbs 10, 19 says, He who gathers in summer uh, is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. See, but this serpent is not using his prudence to glorify the Lord, is he? We recognize that there's something troubling about his approach to the woman the conversation that he initiates with her. There's a few strange things about this serpent, right? For one, it talks. Talking serpents, in case you've spent most of your life avoiding snakes, um, are uncommon, to say the least, Uh, which is to say it doesn't happen. Man, the jokes are falling flat this morning. That's okay. We'll get through this together. So we we already have a hint that this isn't merely a beast of the field, uh, but something under the control of someone else, someone with an agenda to trick the man and the woman, to deceive. As we look at Genesis, right, we've been walking through Genesis for the last few weeks. It's the first book of the Bible, but we, here in 2020, uh, have the advantage of the rest of the canon of Scripture to help us interpret Scripture. Nothing in Genesis 3 or any other chapter in Genesis tells us who this serpent really is. But if we flip to the back of the book in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, um, John revisits this scene and he tells us the name of the actor. He says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Spoiler alert, right? We, we got to the end there right, as we're getting to the beginning of this story. But we know now that this serpent isn't just a serpent. We also know that this serpent and its possessor were created by the Lord. <clears throat> because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. So lest we be tempted to see the universe as as God and the devil dualistically trying to gain the upper hand in a cosmic chess match, let us remember that the serpent, Satan, and mankind and the whole world all owe their very existence, their continuing existence, 
to the Lord God. God is sovereign over deceiving snakes, rebelling angels, and ignorant, unsuspecting humans. God's plan wasn't thrown off course by the serpent. No, God brought about his plan of salvation and judgment, using the serpent as a pawn in his game, as a, as a stone in his mosaic, maybe a, a log for his fire. Genesis 3 is the end of the beginning, and the beginning of the redemptive end for God's creation, especially for the pinnacle of that creation, man, male and female, made in God's image for his glory. Now, we see the serpent sow seeds of doubt. Back to verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Starting in, in verse in chapter 2, verse 4, and up to this point, Moses, the author of Genesis, has been using God's covenant name as he's described the goodness of the garden and the beauty of the relationship between himself and his people. He's not just God, the transcendent, uh, the transcendent creator of all things, but also the Lord God, the imminent provider and source of life and joy. But the serpent drops that covenant name, and we'll see that the woman follows suit. Satan's temptation of the woman begins by minimizing the relationship that God has with his people. His question to the woman is really more of a statement of surprise, a rhetorical question. God really won't let you eat any of these garden trees? Misquoting God, he expresses to Eve a sense of shock at what God had said, right? Even though he hadn't said it. The woman had never heard anyone, her husband or any other animal, question God's word. Even though God didn't say what the serpent said, it had never occurred to Eve that one could evaluate God's commands as this serpent had. When you read the Bible... Have you ever noticed that some of what God commands seems almost unreasonable, right? Did he really, did he really say that? Am I really supposed to like take a full day off at work? Am, does he really care who I bring into my bedroom? Some of God's word, it makes me do that all the time, right? I'm, I'm comfortable I'm secure in telling you that, right? Sometimes God's commandments buck up against what I think is right or fair or nice, right? But from where does the idea come that we can judge God's commands? This is what God gently corrects his servant Job over in Job 40, verses 1 and 2. It says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall the fault finder contend? With the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. And then he continues to berate him for three solid chapters, putting him in his place. See, we, we don't get to evaluate whether or not God's word is, is as good as it should be. That's not, that's not our place. And, and that's what Satan is doing to, to the woman here. 
He's putting this question out not to get an answer. He doesn't, he doesn't want to know what God really said. But he's begging a further question from the woman and her husband. Why does God prohibit us from stuff? Why is he, what's he keeping? What's he keeping for himself? Now the woman answers with a correction, but also an exaggeration. In verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She attempts, attempts to set the serpent straight on, on the facts. No, no, we, we can eat from all these trees, except for that one in the middle. But then we see a hint of evidence that the serpent's plan is, is beginning to work. She adds to God's commandment what the Lord had never said. Neither shall you touch it, or else you'll die. The woman has already become emboldened to modify God's instruction. This is what the Pharisees had done with, with the Sabbath in the days of, of Jesus. Really, they did it with a whole lot of commands, but this is one that we see a lot in the New Testament. They exaggerated and modified and overapplied God's true and living and good commandments and made man-made traditions equal to divine law. And when somebody didn't fall in line with those traditions, they would pounce and accuse and prosecute these people as though they had wantonly disregarded God's commandments, God's law. When Jesus corrected their mistakes, they became enraged against him. And he was ultimately rejected by his own people for breaking their traditions. He was called a lawbreaker, but he never broke one of God's laws. It's a good thing that people don't do that anymore, right? Rejecting people for failing to conform to man-made rules and traditions in the name of righteousness or justice, holiness or religion. God's word has, has something for us here. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2 says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Last night as I was practicing this, I left out like three words when I was quoting that, and I laughed at the, the, the irony in that. Because adding to God's word, when we add to, to God's word what he hasn't said, it's to insinuate that God's work can be improved upon, and, and it's to insinuate that we're the ones that can do it. The seeds of of doubt and sin are already being planted here in the hearts and the minds of the man and the woman. But now, the serpent will drive them home. In verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. There it is. He flat out lies. God said that you would die, but I'm calling his bluff. Some people argue that Satan was playing lawyer here, right, and responding to this woman's amendment to the law, right? God hadn't said that they would die for touching it, so maybe Satan was being technical while still being deceptive, right? I'm not so sure Satan cares about being truthful when he lies about the character of God one verse later. In John 8, 44, Jesus calls the devil the father of lies, 
And so I don't mind calling this what it is. It's a bald-faced lie from the serpent. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. One commentator points out that the man and the woman are now faced with a choice. It's the serpent's word against God's. And the first doctrine to be denied is judgment. You won't surely die. Whenever we choose to sin, we give in to the same lie. God's word is very clear. The wages of sin is death. Each and every time we make the moral choice to disregard God's word and disobey his commands, we're calling God a liar. We're daring him to keep his word. We're declaring that the Lord God is all talk, and boy, are we wrong. Now the man and the woman have heard for the first time that they can decide for themselves whether or not God's word can be trusted. Sure, God never lied to me before, they might have thought, but neither as a serpent. I've never seen what happens when someone chooses a different way than God's direction. I mean, no one's ever died before. Maybe he, he didn't really mean that. And hey, I mean, everything is really good here in Eden. It's very good, in fact, right? Maybe, maybe we can make it better. Let's improve upon the place if we have wisdom. And, and here we see the seductive insanity of sin. With, with the seeds of doubt planted, the serpent now moves on to, to tempting actual action here from the, from the man and the woman. Verses three, or chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 again. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There are so many semantic things that happen here in this verse when the serpent deceives or attempts to deceive the woman. He says, when you eat of it, right? When you eat of it, not if you eat of it. The serpent is actually, he's not dealing anymore in hypotheticals if you eat of it. He's saying when you do it. He wants them to visualize taking that fruit, taking a bite, making a decision for themselves to go against God's stated law. You're not going to die. God just knows that you'll be like him, judging good and evil for yourselves. You see the irony here? That's exactly what he's been leading them to do the whole time. Judge, to judge for themselves. Judge for yourself what is right for you, Eve. The serpent speaks as though perfect fellowship with the Lord isn't enough. The creator God has perfectly designed all of it, everything, to be right for them. Provisions, safety, human relationships, and a perfect fellowship with God. It's right to be objects of God's provision, trusting him to take care of all our needs. As God has declared, it's very good. But now Satan is tempting them to think, maybe it could be better if you could do this yourself. For God knows, said the serpent, for God knows, as though he was able to see into the mind of the Lord God. Satan is not omniscient. No one can know the mind of the Lord. Romans 11, 33 and 34 says this. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the, and the knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Satan's pride and falsehood and arrogance here are on full display. If only our first parents were able to recognize it for what it is. And what is it that the serpent knows? What does he know that God knows? Well, he tells the pair God's motives. How God wishes to withhold knowledge from them. You're not going to die. God just wants to keep you under his thumb. If you eat of that tree, you'll know what he knows, and then you'll be just like God. You can be more than you are, more than God ever wanted, wanted you to be. Be like God, the serpent hisses, and make your own decisions. For Adam and Eve, the, the alarm bell should have been ringing louder at this point than at any other time. Be like God. We are like God. We're made in his image. After his likeness. We are like God. We don't need a fruit. We don't need autonomy. We don't need selfish ambition to be like God. The, any contradiction to God's revealed word is, is a lie. It's falsehood. It's deception. We discern truth by measuring it according to God's revelation. The fall of man boiled down is rooted in the failure to take God at his word. It's rooted in unbelief. Knowing good and evil was the, was the real fruit there, right? Knowing good and evil. In a sense, the, the serpent was telling the truth. When they ate, when they eat of the tree, indeed, they will get an immediate lesson in good and evil. But the knowledge Satan promises is far more than they could, they could bargain for. The knowledge of good and evil, writes Peter Gentry, has, has to do with the exercise of absolute moral autonomy. That is to say, knowing good and evil means choosing or determining for oneself what is right and wrong independently of God and his word. We recognize this in our own hearts as well. Almost nobody would teach their children to be suspicious of what God doesn't provide for them. No one really has to. We don't learn along the way to question God's sincerity or to judge the rightness or wrongness or goodness or badness of a biblical command. It, it just starts happening in our hearts. Certainly, there are people of various worldviews who would deny the truth of God's judgment or defame his motives within the universe and, and teach others to do the same. There are books out there that do this. But no one needs to be discipled to rebel against God. No one has to be pushed very hard to demand lordship over his own life. No one has to learn how to sin anymore. Adam and Eve did. They had to learn how to sin. But once they did, it changed their and our very nature. So when the man saw that the tree, or so, the, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Note the progression here. She saw that the tree was good for food. She saw that it was good. That, that language is familiar, right? In Genesis 1, as God created his world, he would look 
and see. And he saw that it was good. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 31, he steps back and he says, it's very good. But the woman has already put herself in the position of God. Declaring the forbidden tree good. She's no longer interpreting reality through the objective truth of God's revealed word. But now she bases her decision on these practical values. It grows, right? Tree's good. It looks good. Many of us have learned the hard way that just because something appears to, to grow, produce, doesn't mean it's good growth, right? Jesus talks about knowing a tree by its fruit. Bad trees don't produce good fruit. That's how you judge a tree, right? Judge it by its fruit. But the woman, she's already judged the tree. She's let someone else tell her what the tree is like without any regard to what God has already told her about it. Next, she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. That word delight should be familiar too. Last week, Pastor Ryan told us that Eden sounds like the Hebrew word for delight. The Lord had made Eden and placed his image bearers in it to delight in it. Not in, not in Eden itself alone, but also in one another, to delight in one another. And most importantly, to delight in God. But here is Eve casting her gaze upon the fruit of a forbidden tree, surrounded by Eden's groves of perfect fruit, all for the taking. And her judgment is clouded by the, the, this aesthetic beauty before her. She delights in it. It is a delight to her eyes, this forbidden fruit. And again, we can relate, right? Don't you ever find yourself surrounded by what God has blessed you with, only to be tempted by what God has forbidden? That's the essence of covetousness. Uh, according to a 2016 survey, between 55 and 70% of married men surveyed had viewed pornography the previous year. Now that seems high, right? That, and, and so you know what they say about statistics. But if it's high, it's probably not high by much. That, that same study says, uh, said that it was about 30 to 40% for married women. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything good comes from God. But a lot of times we don't want every good gift we want every delight to the eyes, everything that delights our sinful hearts. And finally, the woman saw that the tree was desired to make one wise. She wanted that, that prideful gain. I'll know something I don't. She justified disobeying God's word by weighing out this cost-benefit. If I know what I don't know, if I become like God, I'll be able to, I'll be able to make my life even better than it is right now. Serpent doesn't think I'll die. Maybe God's just not sure I can handle this right now. And she took and eat. And she gave it to her husband. And he ate. 
Now, I've heard some ignorant things conjectured upon from pulpits and Bible studies. I've heard this verse used to justify all sorts of misogynistic, sexist chatter about women. This verse is not a justification to paint women with a broad stroke as bad decision makers or easily deceived people or ditzy. Women are not a liability for men in their households. That kind of humor, that coarse humor, is not, uh, is not becoming of Christ followers. This verse should not be used as a proof text for that kind of asinine ideology. Adam didn't just pop up after the fact and get dragged down with Eve after she'd fallen into temptation and sin. The, the man had been there with her the whole time. In fact, there's an indictment here for men who take a passive stance when it comes to protecting and leading their wives and families well. Adam had one job outlined in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Keep it here means to guard, to protect it, and everything in it. He had authority over that entire garden, and we see that played out when he was allowed by God to give names to everything there. That means that Adam is the first one to call the serpent, serpent. He knew he had authority over the beasts of the field. When that serpent started to work an angle with his wife, deceiving and tempting her to doubt God, that was Adam's cue to step in, uppercut that snake, walk his wife over to the next tree to enjoy that fruit in the joy of the Lord. But he didn't. Not because Eve got herself into some trouble like a bimbo, but because he had started to doubt God's word. He had started to doubt God's character. He had started to doubt God's sincerity too. He knew what that fruit was, and he wanted a bite. Brothers and sisters, sin is irrational. It has always been irrational, and it always will be irrational. Sin is stupid. Sin is sociopathic. Sin is suicidal. As R.C. Sproul said, sin is cosmic treason. It is a deeply wrong, unnatural phenomenon that always leads to death. Sin is not just the act of making little mistakes or poor decisions or inevitable hiccups or cute little statements of personal independence and empowerment. And many professing evangelicals even play dangerous games with sin out of a presumptuous attitude and a false belief that sin's not that big, big of a deal and that God's gone soft because he just loves us ever so much. This episode in the Bible is commonly known as the fall. But Stephen Dempster points out an expression like cosmic tragedy is a more suitable expression than fall. The flagrant rebellion against the divine word by the pinnacle of creation, which has just been invested with the divine rule, is a heinous crime against the cosmos and its creator. And the consequences of sin was seen immediately. Now, they didn't drop dead after one bite of the fruit. God's mercy and judgment are far too great for that to happen. But they feel the weight of their actions in an instant. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They wanted knowledge of good and evil. Well, they got it. They got so much more knowledge of good and evil than they ever, ever meant to find. Their eyes were opened. And then their, their cheeks began to blush. The hair on the back of their neck started to stand up and tingle. And their mouths went dry. Their faces got hot. And the man and the woman stood there. They'd always been naked. But now they felt naked. Where there was once a beautiful, healthy relationship between the two of them, there is now the heavy ache of shame. They saw each other. And they knew the other knew their sin. And they felt exposed and dirty. How had they gotten there? They, they just wanted to be wise like God. They didn't feel wise, just naked. In, in verse 1, I mentioned that the serpent was described as being crafty. Now, the Hebrew word for crafty is arum, which sounds really similar to the Hebrew word you hear used for naked, which is arumim. Now, I tell you that not because Hebrew is really important for you all to go home with, but how tragically poetic is it that in the man and the woman's desire to be wise like God, they instead become more like the serpent, crafty, arum, naked, arumim, and ashamed. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths to cover their nakedness. They took the largest leaves they could find, fig leaves, and sewed them together to, to hide their naughty bits. And to this point, to this point, the Lord God had made everything for them. Everything that they required. Everything. But now, in the wake of their sin, they look not to God for provision, but they make for themselves coverings. This is, a, this is a picture of what we all do outside of the grace of Jesus. All man-made religion is, is a response to the guilt and shame of our sin. And the fear of facing God and one another exposed is too much for us. And so we create fig leaf apron systems in an attempt to atone, to cover our own sin. This self-protection and self-atonement always betrays within us a self-righteousness that can never hold up under divine scrutiny. When the storms of life come and your sin emerges and the rains fall down, those fig leaf aprons fall apart. One of the principles of expository preaching is that every passage has a gateway to the gospel right, right there in it. And it was hard to do that, to find that here in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. But I think I see it here in verse 7. Not because we have good news that we can cover up our shame with man-made fig, fig, yeah, fig leaf boxer briefs, but because man recognized in, his, in himself the instant that he sinned, even at that moment, that sin needed to be covered. Sin needs to be covered. Our shame needs to be covered up. And even though they sought to hide from one another, and as we'll see next week from God, there's a hint, a glimpse of a, of a, of a hope for a future Savior. 
one who will remove our silly, soiled, jolly green loincloths and cover us in his true and glorious righteousness. So what? The human race fell into sin when our first parents chose to reject God as Lord. And as guilty rebels, we are unable to save ourselves. Falling into the snare of the deceptive serpent, Adam, Eve, and the rest of mankind made the personal moral choice to doubt God's word, to reject God's good and righteous character, and to declare ourselves the Lord of our own lives, independent of our creator king. Our sin caused a ripple effect of guilt and shame that destroys our relationships that we'll see for the rest of the Bible, the rest of our lives, and for the rest of human history until the Lord returns. With, with tries me we may, we can never cover ourselves. But our, because our problem is not merely an external one. Our problem is with our very nature, bent inward by sin. Jeremiah chapter 13 verse 23 says, can, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Just like an, an Ethiopian can't change his skin color and a leopard can't change the pattern on his fur, neither can mankind change his own heart to perfectly trust and obey God. But God can. Jesus Christ is the new Adam who guards his bride, covers us in his righteousness. He casts out the malicious serpent, crushes his head, in fact, imputes his progeny with his righteousness, having never fallen into sin himself. And in Revelation 22, Jesus Christ leads us home to the tree of life, to the tree of life, in the perfect fellowship of our Lord God forever. If you know your nakedness is exposed before a holy God this morning, if you acknowledge that you've made the moral choice to live according to your rebellious, sinful, self-exalting nature, and your eyes are open today to your nakedness, come. Come confess to God that you've doubted his word, that you've disbelieved in his goodness and righteousness and rejected him. Come and receive the grace of God in Christ who died for your sins, rose again to declare you righteous. He washes you clean, has forgiven you and received you as his own all through, through the miraculous substitution of Jesus Christ on the cross, the new and righteous Adam. Come, you want something to eat? Take and eat. Take and eat from him. He alone can satisfy. He alone can save. He alone can cover your nakedness. Let's pray. Our God, we confess that we have grown up to be just like our mom and dad. While we were imputed with a sin nature like, like theirs. God, we don't sin because the devil made me do it, but because we wanted to do it. And we know 
what we've fallen into. We, we recognize, Lord, that you are good, your word is good, and, and we are in desperate need of your salvation. Save us now, Lord, I pray that you would move in the lives of and in, in the hearts of, of unbelievers and believers alike, that you would increase our faith, that you would draw us to you, and that you would give us the hope of your return, that you would, would cover us with the hope and the joy of knowing that in Christ our sins are no longer counted against us, but we are reckoned righteous for your sake. Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.